deep waters here, no pun intended. Uh, this is probably one of the most uh, misunderstood um, passage in the New Testament. I would argue it seems fairly clear, but it, it, it does have, some, when you dig down, and, and hopefully I can reveal that today, but remember the context. It's important that we remember the context. Peter is writing to a group of believers who are outside of their homeland. They're aliens. They're sojourners. They're being persecuted. The temptation is to to, to not stand firm, and, and Peter is writing to encourage them to stand firm. We saw this last week. Again, Peter's point, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Verse 17, it is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is wrong. Even over in chapter 4, he's going to make that same appeal. The context, Peter is making an argument to believers to show them why it is better to suffer now for your faith than to suffer eternally at the hand of God. That's Peter's point. It is better to suffer now because of your faith than it is to suffer eternally for your lack of faith. That's the context. And as we saw last week, he uses, first of all, in verse 18, he uses Christ's own death and resurrection as the first illustration of that. Jesus suffered because of who he is. If you go to John 5, they put him to death because Jesus was claiming equality with God. He was claiming that God was his father. He, they put him to death because of that. He suffered for doing what was right. And in the resurrection, in his resurrection, God vindicated him. Again, illustration number one, that it is better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is wrong. Jesus temporarily suffered, eternally vindicated. That's the promise that, that Christ holds out to you and I. And that's what Peter is, is making the point, that it is better to suffer now as a believer and to be eternally vindicated, to be eternally glorified with the Lord than it is to live it up now and prosper now and to be eternally dimmed, condemned. The world would have thought it won when it crucified Jesus and three days later he rose out of the tomb vindicating who he was eternally. That same resurrection is promised to you and I. That's the context. It is better to suffer temporarily now for doing what is right than eternally suffer because of your sin. Jesus Christ, God through Jesus Christ has offered us forgiveness. He has offered an exchange. I repent of my sin. I give that over to Jesus. In return, he gives me his righteousness, his perfection, then eternal life. That's the exchange that's offered. Does it mean, as a Christian, does it mean that everything is going to go well for you here on this earth? No. You and I are in a foreign land. This is not our home. That's the illustration. That's the point. We are aliens. This is not our home. 
And, and that's the context. If Peter is making his point with three to four different examples here, illustrations that it is better to suffer now on behalf of Christ and be eternally vindicated through your faith than it is to live up, live everything up and have all the world's goods now and be eternally condemned. Why would Pete, again, stand firm in the face of unjust suffering? Why? Because you will be eternally vindicated. And last week we looked at, verse, at the first point from verse 18. Peter writes to encourage believers to stand firm by reminding them of Christ's own suffering and what it accomplished. He began with Christ. All throughout 1 Peter, the very first thing he does to make his points is he begins with Christ. Look to Christ. We showed you Hebrews, it's, it's, and that's all throughout the Bible, Hebrews 12 too, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And what was the result? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He was vindicated. Given a place of honor, eternally. And yet it went through suffering. And last week, we looked at the point, and Thursday evening in our Bible study, we looked at the point of the gospel. The, the gospel, Jesus is the only way that you can be reconciled back to God, forgiven of your sin. That is very clear, and he says that in verse 18. For Christ died for sins once and for all. Why did Christ die? Because of sin. Not because of his own sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died because of sins, but not his own sins. He hadn't any. He died because God's creation had sinned. And in Christ, God is making a way for sinful man, sinful humanity, to be reconciled back to their creator. Again, you see it. He died for sins once for all. The just, that's Christ. For the unjust, that's you and I. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Reconciliation. Our sins have separated us from our Creator, from our God. And Christ's death makes a way for us to be reconciled. Why? Because Christ is righteous, perfect, just. You and I in sin are unjust, unrighteous. We exchange, we trade our sinfulness for His righteousness. You and I, because of our sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Somebody had to die because of sin. And God in His graciousness crucified His own Son as your substitute. That whosoever would call upon the Lord, whoever would repent of their sin and call out to the Lord could be saved. Why? Because the, the, the demand of, sin, of death was satisfied. Christ died for sins once and for all. Once and for all. The just for the unjust. And that's the first example, that's the number one example that Peter puts forth here on why it's better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is wrong. That's verse 18. Verse 19, Peter gives the second illustration. The second um, example, if you will, is he's building his case on why it's better to suffer for doing what is right than wrong. And look what he says. In which he also went and made proclamation of the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
Peter encourages his believers in these two verses in example number two of building his case on why it's better to suffer now temporarily than eternally. And he shows that Jesus Christ himself proclaimed victory. That's the fill-in. Jesus Christ himself proclaimed victory over all of his enemies when he rose from the grave. Personally. Personally vindicated. And in this case, Peter is using Noah as a specific example. And verse 19 is where the so-called difficulties begin. Where did he go? When did he go? To whom did he speak? What did he say? All of those are debates that go on and on and on. And I, and I believe as you look at it, and if you're honest with the text, it becomes clear. And, and given the context here, and again, that Peter is... is Trying to encourage believers to stand firm. No matter what you face, stand firm. And given the fact, verses 19 and 20, it's a specific proclamation to a specific group, in this case, vindicating Noah. And Peter is drawing, you see it in your handout, he's drawing upon Noah and his experience of unjust suffering and God's vindication of him to encourage Believers to stand firm. The second example that Peter gives on why it's better to stand firm, why it's better to suffer now than eternally, is Noah. During Noah's day, sin was rampant unlike ever before. In Genesis, to the point where in Genesis 6-5, the Lord says that he saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and God says I'm going to destroy it that's the culture in which Noah ministered that's the culture in which Noah opposed that's the wickedness that he stood in the face of and in the face of that culture here's what God comes to Noah and does he says Noah I'm going to flood the earth I'm going to rid it of all the evil I want you to build this massive boat in the middle of the desert and I want you to proclaim that one day a flood's coming, and if you don't get on the ark, you're going to die. Now put yourself in Noah's shoes for a minute. You're in the middle of the desert. Hey, build this massive. Look, we've been to the ark encounter. It is massive. Many of you have. Could you imagine building that thing? Year after year after year after year, building an ark in the middle of the desert saying, you know what, God told me one day it's going to rain. And unless you get on this ark, you're going to die for your sin. You think Noah was mocked and ridiculed in the generation where evil was unprecedented? You think he was mocked and ridiculed for, for spending his life building an ark? You think he was mocked and ridiculed for obeying God when everybody else is living it up, everybody else is enjoying it, and here Noah is day after day after day spending his life obeying God and building an ark. And yet in the face of that culture, Noah stood firm and built. John, John read it, Hebrews 11 verse 7, By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. That's the essence of faith. He, who, who has faith in what he sees? In, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Again, this is huge, and we're going to get to it in a minute about baptism. 
Noah's righteousness that came how? By faith. By faith. You think that ark would have provoked a culture? You think every time they saw that ark, they just said, yeah, that joker claims it's going to rain. That joker, that fool over there thinks it's going to flood the earth. Can you believe that? All the while, Noah is proclaiming the gospel. He's saying, hey, listen, there's a flood coming. If you don't get on the ark, you're going to die. You think he was mocked by that? You think he was ridiculed? You think he suffered? You think it was easy every day to stand up there and keep building and keep building and keep building? Again, Noah is an example. He's encouraging them. It's better to suffer because, listen to me, guess what happened one day? The rains came. Guess what happened? The whole earth was flooded. Guess what happened? Only eight survived. God vindicated him. All those years he stood firm. All those years, as 2 Peter 2, 5, it says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. All those years God was making a a declaration. Repent. Repent. There's a flood coming. Eight people listened to him. His family. Eight people got on that ark. Noah stood firm in the face of unjust suffering. Noah Noah stood firm on his faith. And guess what? God vindicated him. And Peter's point, I believe, is that there were only eight people that lived in Noah's day that were spared from the judgment of God. But nevertheless, listen to me, they were saved. They were saved. Why? Because it's better to suffer for doing what is right than it is to suffer for for our sin. And God vindicates his own through their faith. And the ark proved that. Listen, you and I today, here's the application. You and I today are preaching a gospel. And you know what we're saying? One day there's a flood coming and it's God's judgment. One day the doors of the ark are going to be shut. Just like in Noah's day. And when those doors are shut, it's too late. We too are having faith in something that we haven't seen. And Noah's an example to us to stand firm. No matter what the culture says, no matter what your friends say, no matter what the people around you say, there's coming a day where God's word is going to be proved to be true. And if you don't get on the ark, the ark is a picture of Christ. If you are not in Christ, God's judgment is going to sweep you away to eternal condemnation. Just like it did that day. And Peter is encouraging believers through the use of Noah, that even though they're a minority, even though they're a small subset of the culture, even though the enemies outnumber them, listen, they are not overlooked by God, and God saves the righteous in spite of their small numbers. He saves his own in spite of their small numbers. You may be the minority at work. You may be the minority at your school. You may be the minority in your neighborhood. You may be the minority in your town, in your city, whatever. Here's what Peter says. Stand firm because one day you will be vindicated. One day. In 2 Peter 2.9, Peter makes the same statement. Listen to this. And he mentions, he mentions Noah. 
in the context. And he says, listen, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's exactly what he's saying here. I believe that, again, I believe that he's referring to a group of people specifically that mocked and ridiculed Noah for his obedience. They rejected the salvation that God was offering through Noah by faith. And, one, and listen, the ark closed and they were judged. And what, what Peter is saying is those individuals are still held in prison today. There were evil, there were, there were fallen angels in Noah's day. There were fallen individuals. Listen, all of them are held up. Even in 2 Peter 4, it's 2, 4. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world. Look at angels and non-angels alike. You sin, judgment of God. Even in Jude 6, he says... And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That's who he's talking about. And Jesus' resurrection, listen, Jesus, this is how awesome a Savior Jesus is. He personally went and vindicated his own. Personally went and delivered the message and proclaimed the message to them Look, I told you I was the Christ. I told you you were going to kill me. And I told you three days later I would resurrect. And guess what? I'm here to show you that I did. He personally made the proclamation. In prison. To all of those who had fallen. All of those who had rejected his grace. And Peter is specifically using Noah as an example. As one example of that. All these years later, you know where sinner, you know where people who rejected God's grace were all these years later? Still in prison awaiting final judgment. They had their fun at Noah's expense. They lived it up while they lived here on this earth. And guess what? Now they await final judgment. And in contrast, in contrast, Noah suffered while he lived. And the point, again, the point Peter is making is that suffering for doing what is right, even dying for doing what is right, meaning your faith, is not the final judgment on who is right. The reality is, believer, you may die because of your faith. That's not the final judgment. That doesn't mean you are wrong. That's what Peter is saying. Jesus Christ personally when he died, and for those three days, and again, he's outside of time and space, he's outside of our concept, he went and personally proclaimed their condemnation. Personally vindicated his own. And his resurrection proved that. He personally vindicated all believers then and now through his resurrection. And, and you see that, again, the, we see the phrase proclamation here in verse 19. This is not evangelism. This is a totally different word. Verse 6, if you go to 1 Peter 4, 6, for the gospel has for this reason been preached even those who are dead. That's, they had their chance while they were alive. That's a totally different word. He is proclaiming victory. His resurrection was a proclamation of victory. And, and again, the proclamation was, listen, 
it's better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer eternally for doing what is wrong. This is a proclamation of victory. It's not an offer of salvation. They were dead. They had their chance. All those years Noah stood there and proclaimed, offered salvation, offered salvation. They rejected him. They had their chance. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed to man once to die and after that to face judgment. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Today is the day of salvation. God is in his grace, in his patience, just like in the days of Noah, is, is offering you a chance to repent of your sin and to be reconciled to him. But there's coming a day where the rains are going to begin and the doors of the ark are going to be shut. And when those doors are shut, it's too late. It's too late. And I say that clearly because there are people who try to use this passage to teach universalism or to teach that you get this second chance at salvation after you die. That is clearly not the, the truth of Scripture. It is appointed to man to once to die, to die once, and after that, guess what you get? Judgment. No second chances, no do-overs, no reincarnation, none of that. There's one question. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Savior or not, that determines your eternal destiny. And the clear principle you see of Scripture is that one's eternal destiny is determined based on their response to Christ. And God in His gracious was preaching Christ in Noah's day, and He's preaching Christ in Peter's day, and He's preaching Christ in our day. And here's what He's saying, repent. And if you don't, and if you die, you are eternally condemned. And the context is this, stand firm, believer. Stand firm. No matter who you are, God judges the disobedience of all that he has created. He was not indifferent. He, again, even though God was patient, don't take that to mean indifference. God in his grace is giving you a chance to repent and have your sins forgiven through the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's why he died. So that we could be forgiven. And those who were disobedient in Noah's day, the point he's making, are, were eternally condemned and they are still awaiting judgment even in Peter's day. Even in Peter's day. That would have been the message that was proclaimed to the unrighteous dead in prison by Jesus Christ awaiting their final judgment. Condemnation. And Jesus personally delivered the message. And the, the reality, the overflow of that is, believers, stand firm. Stand firm in your faith. Why? Because it's better to suffer temporarily now for doing what is right than it is to suffer eternally for doing what is wrong in God's eyes. Sin. And Peter's point, again, you see it in your handout, is the same God who saved Noah in spite of his suffering is the same God who will believe, save believers today in spite of their suffering. And again, that would have encouraged his readers. Their enemies, again, their death, their suffering, it wasn't the final judgment. God rendered that through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's resurrection. And he, Jesus personally, after he died, was immediately made alive in the Spirit, and he went and made proclamation to those who were in prison. Condemnation. That it's better to suffer. 
if it be God's will for his righteousness than it is for sin. And, and let me give you a few ways that this would have encouraged believers. This ought to encourage us today. You see on your handout, A, Peter assures believers of the greatness of Christ. Christ was being preached thousands of years before Peter, thousands of years after Peter until he returns. And Jesus will vindicate his own. He's true to his word. 2 Corinthians says, For as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they're yes. Christ will always defend. He will always vindicate his own, no matter where you are, no matter how you suffer. But, but I think even beyond that, Noah's, Noah's opponents, those who faced Noah, who, who stood in opposition to him, were the vilest of the vile, were the worst of the worst. And yet God offered them salvation. Stood, ready to forgive. And yet, they rejected it, and they stand condemned. God will judge the, he will judge the disobedient. But it's the greatness of Christ that, again, it's Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There's no sin that you've committed that God's blood can't forgive. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've had done to you, God's grace abounds all the more. And he stands ready to forgive. Don't let the door of the ark shut before you get on the ark. That is Christ. The greatness of Christ. That in spite of that opposition, he was ready to forgive. But also, Peter assures believers that it's better to obey Christ than to be eternally cast in hell. That's the whole point. They did, there was no get-out-of-jail-free card. Eternally condemned. But also Peter assures, see, Peter assures believers that there's no disadvantage to be a small rejected minority. Even if you're a minority in your obedience to God, you will be saved and the tables will be turned one day. When suffering comes, do not throw away your hope. When opposition comes, do not throw away your hope. And he uses Noah as an example. If you stand firm in the grace of God, you too will be brought safely through the waters of God's judgment. That's the point. You will be vindicated for any suffering that you experience here in, in accord to your seeking to advance the gospel or to stand firm or to make much of God. Listen, you will be vindicated. That even if you suffer, even if you should die, his point is that's not the final judgment. God has the final judgment. And he's saying, stand firm. And he uses Noah as an example of somebody who committed the way to God in the face of harsh treatment and yet was vindicated. That's the point. Stand firm in the grace of God. Trust God. There's coming a day where, the, again, the, the floods are coming. God, no matter how long it takes, just like in Noah's day, there, what God said will come to be. And when that day comes, it will be too late. And God is patiently offering salvation to the whole world right now. And there's coming a day, and he's doing it through you and I. And in the same way Noah suffered, he's saying, look, stand firm. Stand firm. If you need encouragement, go to Christ. If you need encouragement, go back to Noah. 
The vilest of the vile, he stood in face, and I opposed them, and I vindicated him. I'll do the same for you, believer. At your workplace, yes. In your school, yes. On your sports clubs, yes. In your neighborhoods, yes. Doesn't matter what they say about you. Doesn't matter if you're the only one. Vindication. And then Peter goes on in verse 21 to say, corresponding to that. So listen, the ark and Noah are the picture. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Peter writes, you see on your handout, number three, to encourage believers to stand firm in the face of unjust suffering by reminding them of their baptism and its public display of their loyalty to Christ, no matter what they face. Again, the emphasis is on Christ and his work. Keep that in mind. Peter is painting a picture and he's using the ark. And here's my question, and this is what Peter is saying. If I asked you, and I won't ask you to raise your hand because I don't want, I don't, I don't want to do that. If I asked you, what saved Noah, what would you say? Most people say ark. It was his faith. The ark did not save Noah. Noah's faith saved Noah. You know why Noah built that ark? Faith. You know why Noah got on that ark? Faith. Corresponding to that. You know why Matthew Rossetti got in these baptismal waters, this water, and professed his faith this morning and professed his faith to Christ faith not to remove his dirt not to remove his sin not to be saved on the surface it would seem the ark saved Noah and his family it did not we read Hebrews eleven seven by faith Noah built the ark and he's saying the same thing Peter is saying that baptism offers the same picture the ark was simply an outward picture of his faith that's all he's saying when you saw the ark, you're like, what would make a man do that? Faith in Christ. Faith in the promises of God's word. What would make somebody get up here and in boiling water? I wanted to make sure it wasn't cold like Bill's baptism back there for the little guy. And then it's boiling lava hot. Like we're going to freeze your sins away. That's popular today with some stuff. And then we're going to burn them away. No, that's not baptism. Look, corresponding to the ark. Baptism is an evidence of your faith, just like the ark was an evidence of Noah's faith. That's the correlation. The ark and baptism evidence something greater, namely faith in Christ. And that faith will deliver you from the coming judgment of God. That's why it's better to suffer. The ark was a reminder God is faithful. And, and Peter knows that what he's saying could be mis, misconstrued, it's misunderstood, and so he says, it doesn't wash away your sin. It exhibits faith. It's a public declaration. It's an outward expression. I mean, li listen, just so there's no confusion here on whether baptism saves, because that, that, that can be, that's a, something that people purport today, and it would, it, I would argue that the whole of Scripture says that's not the case. I'll give you a couple of examples. Besides Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that says, By grace you are saved through faith, and not by works, lest anyone boast. Beyond the fact that Romans 10, 14 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Listen to Acts 16. Paul and Silas are in jail, and they say to them, But what must, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
Don't you just love it? I wish somebody would just walk up to me one day and say, Chris, what must I do to be saved? Well, you got to boil a lot of hot water. No. Look what they say. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you read on, later on, they immediately got baptized. But it was an expression of their faith. Even in, even in, in 1 Corinthians, and, and, and Paul, who is regarded as maybe the greatest missionary, look what Paul writes. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. I did not, I, now I did baptize the household of Stephanus beyond that. I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. Shame on Paul if baptism was a, uh, was a requirement of salvation and he didn't baptize. That's not the point. It's the gospel that saves. Baptism is an outward expression that you're trusting in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, baptism is an appeal, he says, to a good conscience. That same word, conscience, is used over here. Peter's carrying over that thought from 3.16. He says this, Keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You know what he's saying there? Make sure your life and your profession line up. You know what you're saying in baptism? I want my life and my profession to line up. I want you to hold me accountable. Matthew Rossetti, is, we are accountable. He has publicly professed his faith. It's a picture. Baptism springs forth from, from, from faith. It's obedience. No matter how we suffer, and again, they would have suffered tremendously in that day because of their baptism. To go public. Versus hiding. That's why, again, a good conscience. You're going public with your faith. You're making sure everybody knows whose you are. That would have brought on tremendous suffering in that day. Versus being quiet and staying in your house. You realize if you were a believer and you were quiet and others were suffering who had been baptized and you weren't, you know how your conscience would wreck you? You know how guilty you'd feel? That's exactly what he's saying here. Align up your faith and your obedience. Align them up. We get baptized because we're trusting in Christ and His work. That it will bring us safely through the waters of judgment. It was their faith that built that boat. It was the faith that got them on the boat. That's the whole illustration. And he's using that to encourage them. You guys got baptized. You guys publicly professed your faith in Christ. Why, why isn't your life aligning with that profession? Why, why are you tempted to go back on that profession? Stand firm. Maintain a good conscience. Maintain a life where there's integrity, where how you live and what you say line up. That's the point. Noah could not hide. Listen, here's the point. Noah could not hide his faith 
there was a 300-yard or 100-foot boat sitting in the middle of the desert. You know what that boat said? I trust Christ. You were baptized. You, believer, you sat in front of your church family, he's saying, and you publicly professed your faith in Christ. Why are you hiding? Why aren't you standing firm any longer? You were trusting then, trust now. And again, appeal to a good conscience. Stand firm. Stand firm in the completed, all-sufficient, enduring work of Christ. Because just as God delivered Noah hundreds of years after he began that project, he will deliver you. That's the point. Stand firm. And he closes in verse 22 by saying that all enemies, all powers, everything has been subjected to him. Look at what he says. Who is at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, having gone into the heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. We saw in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, the same thing. He says, when Christ had disarmed the rulers, authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. God publicly humiliated all of those people that were opposed to him. It's like what he says in Psalm 2. He says that, that to all those who are opposed to Christ, to all those say we're going to mock them, you know what it says? The Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. Laughs. He laughs. Why? Because he's already, listen, believer, you know what he's saying? You know what he's encouraging you with? All those powers, all that sin, all that junk that's opposed to you, I already whooped them. They're defeated. It would be like if I said to this football team, hey guys, I've already seen the score of the game next Friday. You win. All you got to do out there is go out there and kick their behinds. If you really believe me and you really believe that I was saying that, how much freedom would that give you to go out there and fight and block and tackle and run? Huge. Why? Because you've already won. Just go do it. You're not afraid of them. Because greater is he that is in you, Scripture says, than he who is in the world. And we see in this, it's a conquering power, and he's reminding them of the conquering power of Christ. Again, stand firm. Even though Christ suffered unjustly, it was not the final judgment about who was right. This is the point of Romans 8.37, that in Christ we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We don't just skirt by. We don't win like LSU did yesterday with two seconds left and kick a field goal. The game is in. No, the game is not in question. It's more like FSU yesterday losing to Syracuse. The game was never in question. Karen called me and said, hey, Chris, it's three to nothing. I said, well, good. That's about as close as FSU will be the whole game. We overwhelmingly conquer. Do you understand that, believer? We overwhelmingly conquer. It's a blowout. 
And Jesus has done that for us. You know what he says? Go live. Go live in reckless obedience for me, knowing that the world cannot take anything away from you. That's what he's saying. You have the freedom. You don't have to worry about earning your way to Christ. You don't have to worry about being good enough. You don't worry about, have to worry about when you mess up. You don't have to worry about anything. I got it. I've already put the check in the bank. I've already put the inheritance, he says. It's undefiled, unfading. It's protected by me. I got it. Just go, just go live recklessly for me. Stand firm. Listen, there's, not, there's nothing else out there that compares to this gospel. That's what Peter is saying. Stand firm. We can boldly face suffering knowing, you see it in your handout, the, that the road marked with suffering is a road that ultimately leads to vindication. That's why a part of why we overwhelmingly conquer. Even if Satan were to kill you, you win because you get Christ. That's what, Peter, that's what Paul says in, in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. If I die, I get Christ. If I live, I get fruitful ministry and I get fellowship with Christ. Either way. That's the gospel. And you think, this, this, this is why, again, please hear me, this is why someone would become a Christian even though they know that repenting and turning to Christ and being baptized means that things are probably going to go bad for them in this world, in this life. The answer is, in Christ, we don't, we don't turn to Christ for a safe life. That's not our greatest need. We turn to Christ to have our sins forgiven. That's our greatest need. We turn to Christ because we're separated from Christ and need to be reconciled. That's our greatest need. We turn to Christ because we want to live eternally in His presence in the new heavens and the new earth, not condemned eternally. And that has been promised to you in Christ. Infinitely, infinitely more valuable and important than how things go for you here on this earth. Infinitely more important. And the gospel of Jesus Christ offers that promise. And it was accomplished through the suffering of Christ, and it will be accomplished, meaning spread, by the suffering of God's people. Maybe. And what he's saying is, be encouraged, believer, to stand firm, because you share in the victory when you stand firm. Do you see how that would have been immensely? I hope this encourages you, believer. It would have been immensely encouraging to Peter's days, and that's why he wrote this. When you're discouraged, look to Christ. When you're discouraged, look to Noah. When you're discouraged, go back to your own baptism and the profession, the public profession you made and the loyalty you professed, and stand firm. When you're discouraged, go to Colossians 2.15, go to 1 Peter 3.22, and remember that all your enemies have been defeated. That all your sin, Colossians 2, has been nailed to a cross. Everything that opposed you, conquered. And understand, it is better to suffer temporarily for doing what is right in God's eyes than it is to suffer eternally for doing what is sin in God's eyes. Stand firm. 